In the name of God, amen. Good morning, Grace Church. Wonderful to be with you again. And um, in addition to uh, welcoming me and my husband, Paul, you are also welcoming two dear friends of ours from Minnesota, Don and Judy Lewin, who are sitting in the congregation, visiting Washington, and coming to church to be with us. They, John, Don and Judy, could you just stand so that they could greet you? These are dear old friends who are here. Uh, the last time I was with Grace Church, we were eating delicious Salvadoran food and listening to amazing music, raising a bit of money to help uh, sustain this gorgeous building. And as I recall, some of you danced up quite a storm that night, and even your good rector took a spin on the dance floor. And one of the best things about my life as bishop now is that after four years, I'm I'm beyond the first visit to congregations like Grace, and I have to say that each time my admiration and affection for you grows. Like you, I hold your rector, John, in the highest esteem, and whenever I'm with your assistant priest, including downstairs with the children just now, Sarah Motley just lights up a room. Wonderful, wonderful uh, woman of God. And I'd like to read you a portion of an email that your senior warden, Liz, sent me just this morning, or yesterday, I read it this morning, she sent it last night, en route to Shanghai to visit her daughter. And she starts out by saying that she's sorry that she couldn't be here to welcome me. Going on, the vestry of Grace Church and our entire congregation are looking forward to your visitation. We are so proud of our growing and thriving community. Under John's faithful, spiritual, and ever-loving leadership, our nursery is often full on Sunday mornings. Our Sunday school is growing with the under 12 set, and our well-attended Sunday forums prompt thoughtful and spiritual reflection. On Saturdays, we break bread and share a Bible study with some of the homeless and less fortunate in our neighborhood. In July, our sanctuary resonates with the beautiful music of our Bach Festival, and we welcome the Georgetown community in the fall into our beautiful garden for jazz on the lawn. We have no endowment, but through the generosity of our congregation and the careful stewardship of our leaders, we not only pay our clergy and staff, our monthly operating costs, and a full tithe to the diocese, for which I thank you. We also have um, enough cash in hand to fund phase one of our stone room restoration pro project, price tag of $275,000, and still maintain reserves to cover the inevitable emergencies that go with a 150-year-old building. But that doesn't do justice to the ministries of Grace. Grace's parishioners come from an entire bandwidth of the political spectrum, very important when you're in Washington. And the diversity of ideas makes us richer rather than causing division. I came to Grace 22 years ago as a new mother, and this community has sustained me and supported me through incredible joy and indescribable sorrow and everything in between. I'm so proud to be able to support Grace at this time as senior warden. What a tribute to all of you, and what a blessing you have in your lay leadership here at Grace. And so I simply add my word of thanks um, for all that you are and do in faithfulness to Jesus and to God's mission of reconciliation and mercy. And in the words of St. Paul, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers confident that the one who began such a good work in you will see it through 
to the day of completion in Jesus Christ. I also want to say how happy I am to be with the two who are being confirmed today. Where, who are you? Where are you? Really? Wonderful. It's great to, have, great to be with you on, on this moment in your life as well. By the time I get to the end of my sermon, I hope we'll all have a greater sense of clarity about the nature of God's love for us. That's where I'm headed. And the intimacy with which we're privileged to enter into relationship with our God. This is the one whom Jesus himself called Abba, or Father, in the most familial of terms, and encouraged us to do the same every time we pray, Our Father. And if the masculine image invoked by the word is troubling or inadequate, we are equally free to call upon God as our mother, as our rock, our lifeline, our companion. All biblical metaphors that Jesus himself used to describe what it means to be in relationship with a living God. And the point is all the same. They point to a common truth that God, this God is as close to us as our breath. The one, as our liturgy reminds us, from whom no secrets are hid and whose love for us is unconditional. As St. Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. His list was not hardship or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. I would add, neither our mistakes, our blind spots, our failings, or our sins. God loves us as we are, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And God also loves us enough not to be content to leave us where we are, when what we need to experience, what we need in order to experience the fullness of life is to grow and to change. So in order to get to that end, I need to begin with the things that cause us to doubt everything I've just said, to doubt the love of God. And I'm going to focus today on the things that cause us to doubt God's love that are internal to us, not external. In other words, this is not a sermon about the mystery of undeserved suffering. Although given we've been living into the book of Job for the last three weeks, I'll have to touch upon it. My primary focus is going to be on those things that we say or do that cause us to doubt our own lovability in the eyes of others, in our own eyes, and in the eyes of God. A true story. When I was a newly ordained priest, I had an encounter with a woman attending the church I was serving at the time that ended badly, and it was my fault. Details of what exactly transpired between us have, thankfully, faded from my memory. This was over 25 years ago. But I will never forget what she said the last time we spoke. I cannot accept your apology, and frankly, I don't want to. Our relationship isn't worth the effort for me to forgive you. It hit hard. Now, in full disclosure, I wasn't all that invested in our relationship either, but the bluntness with which she wrote me out of her life was a stunning blow. Keep in mind, I was a newly ordained priest with a self-image heavily invested in my being a good and caring person, and she obliterated that. But even more devastating 
was how strongly I resonated with her words. She wasn't exactly the first person who had said that to me, or more to the point, people whose absence in my life I had interpreted in the same way. You aren't worth the effort for me to forgive you, to love you, to accept you as you are. Now, I'm not saying, and hear me on this, I'm not saying that that's what the important people in my life intended to communicate with their absence, but it's the story I told myself. In the absence of facts, we tell ourselves our own, we make up our own stories, right? I told that story to myself, and it became my story, a big part of my story when it came to love and acceptance, best walk on eggshells. And as a result, all of my life, I have hated making mistakes, hate it. And I've worried terribly when I get things wrong. And I, I am capable of falling into the worst spiral of shame whenever I'm caught off guard by a blind spot, something I don't see in myself that others see, or mistakes that I've made or sins I've committed when I actually thought I was doing right. Do you know that feeling when you're going along thinking you're doing the right thing and then realizing that you were completely off? And when the veil is lifted from my eyes and I can see what apparently was obvious to everybody else, a part of me just feels naked and ashamed. I don't know if any of you have had that feeling. And with far more relationships than I, I care to admit, I have lived with the fear that I would say or do something stupid that would cause the other person to walk away. Now, we all have our share of eggshell relationships, right? The ones that are conditional. Love is conditional. Acceptance is based on merit. And mistakes are deal breakers. But if we go into all our relationships with some of that assumption, you see where that can lead us. And that's been a part of my life. And it's certainly been a part of my relationship with God. And uh, as I said to you before about God loving us as we are and not content to leave us there, a big part of my growing in relationship with God has involved learning a different story. So I'm 55 years old, and I've been at my relationship with God for some time. If scripture is accurate, and I believe that it is, God has been in relationship with me since before I was born. You know the word of that, the words of the beautiful psalm, the psalmist praising God, it was you who formed me in my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe that. My conscious relationship with God began somewhere in my early teens, and mostly what I remember from those years was um, walking on eggshells, a kind of bargaining on my side, and a sense of tentativeness. 
When I was 16, a friend invited me to go to church on Easter Sunday. It happened to be a church with an altar call. And when the pastor invited anyone up who wanted to accept or to welcome Jesus into their hearts, I found myself going forward having no idea what he meant, but recognizing my heart to be a lonely place. And when the pastor, that very kind pastor, prayed for me, I felt something. I think it was love. I think it was acceptance. But I had no idea what kind of love it was. And I immediately began to think of what I needed to do to be worthy of it, or what I might do for it to be taken away. Now, that's, that was the fir- that's my first story. And I've been through a lot with God. And I, I have rarely wavered in the intellectual conviction that that other story isn't the full story, but intellectual conviction and heart knowledge are not the same thing. And it's been this amazing, um, embarrassingly slow, I must say, especially for a bishop to acknowledge this, um, a slow process of accepting this unconditional, unmerited love of God in Christ into my heart. And every time I experience, you know, a failure, a mistake, an unresolved struggle, an unconscious sin brought brought to my awareness, my default, my first answer is to respond with that shame. And over time, I've come to learn that it, yeah, that can be my first answer, but as they say, it's not my final answer. It's not my final answer. It's not... I can accept that love freely. And when I do, and here's the thing, when I do, a part of me is just set free. And my capacity to not only receive love, but offer it in the same way grows each time. And looking back, I marvel at how many times God has reached over the gap between what I think I need to do to be worthy simply to assure me that I'm loved. And every time that happens, the first thing I want to do is offer something of that to somebody else. So I, I pray the same experience for you. Anyone who struggles, if you struggle as I have, to feel worthy, to simply accept that in your limitations, God loves you, and you are enough. And if you want practice, you know, experiencing this, you can try this. Um, And you may do this already, and if so, um, you can just check that off your list. Um, Find a chair, any chair at all that's comfortable for you, and sit in it 10, 15 minutes a day, and simply open yourself in that time to the presence of God. You might read a portion of scripture, you might focus on your breath, you might read a portion of what we call the daily office. It really doesn't matter. It's simply your time with God. Now, if you're like me and your days don't seem to afford you even 15 minutes in that chair, then use a portion of your morning commute. You're walking your dog. If you work out, just turn off the radio, stop trolling Facebook, sit, and listen. I'm working through a book slowly by the pastor Bill Hybels called Simplify. And he says, and I believe him, that this time with God, among other things, is an antidote to what he calls image management. 
which is the exorbitant amount of time we can spend, we can expend maintaining a certain image of ourselves in the world. And the reason we can let it go is because God isn't interested in any of that, he says. And it's also the place where we can practice bringing our full selves to God, everything we've got, our desire, our disappointment, our worries, our thanksgivings, our joys, and our sorrows, just practicing showing up with our full selves. Turning to the scriptures now, you wouldn't think that Job and Jesus' disciples, James and John, have much in common, and maybe they don't. But what struck me as I pondered their stories this week side by side is that is Job's capacity to be fully present in his relationship to God in his suffering and James and John bringing their full selves into relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to briefly do this. If you've been following the story of Job in church or if you know it from your past readings, you know that Job has lost everyone and everything that matters to him and he's in excruciating physical pain besides. And for all of two chapters, he's able, and he's a righteous man. Did I mention he was a righteous man, the most righteous man? And for two chapters, he's able to keep the faith. But eventually, chapter three, he breaks down completely. And he's furious, and he's despondent, and he's frustrated, and he lashes out at God, demanding an account for what's happening to him. And for the next 28 chapters or so, Job is in an argument with three of his friends who are trying to convince him, with the clearest articulation of the theology of their time, that there was a reason for his suffering. And Job would have none of it. He demands a hearing from God. He wants to put God on trial. And what strikes me in this is how, how completely reassured he is that he can take, he can do this with God. He can just show up with all of his rage. And that God can take it. And that their relationship would sustain the full force of his emotion. Right? So hold that. Now let's go to James and John. Similar assurance in the solidity of their relationship with Jesus. How else could you explain the audacity of starting a conversation with Jesus with these words? Teacher, can't even do this with a straight face. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Right? Can you imagine? It's like a child going to a parent. Mom? Before I tell you what it is I want you to promise me, you're going to give me what I ask for Christmas, right? And I can picture Jesus almost smiling at their gall, right, and innocence when he responds, well, what do you want me to do for you? And before considering how the conversation goes, just hold in your mind this image of the two of them so comfortable with Jesus that they could ask such an audacious thing and they weren't self-conscious in the least. They trusted their relationship with him and his love for them. And as it turns out, they could. Because once their friends got word of this, right, their friends were furious with them. Who do you think you are asking God, Jesus, to give you a favored place in his glory? Right? Immediate shame. You fools. But Jesus turns to them all in that moment. He turns serious, but not in a shaming way, and simply uses that moment to teach them something about what greatness means. You see, 
His love for James and John begins in complete acceptance for who they were and where they were in their blind, self-promoting naivete. But he doesn't stop there. He loves them enough to take that moment to teach a difficult truth, calling them to greater self-awareness and spiritual maturity. Now, if I had been in their shoes, I would have been mortified to realize how wrong I was to ask something so ridiculous of Jesus and embarrassed beyond measure when my peers discovered my folly and responded in anger with me. I would have wanted just to be buried into the ground right there. But hear Jesus' response to them. And by extension to me and to any of us, when we're completely off base, just a gentle, corrective love. He's not sparing them the pain of growing up into the fuller implications of love, but his focus is on their growth and ours, their becoming and ours. As the saying goes, he loves us as we are, but too much to let us stay where we are. Going back to Job, God's response to Job, a little less pastoral than Jesus is to his disciples, to put it mildly, but, but no less transformational. I mean, it's basically a rebuke. Who the heck are you? Right? Essentially saying, Job, I'm God. You're not. But in that response, and this is, I mean, I've never understood how that, I've I've never understood how, how that can be comforting, except I know this. Authentic encounters with God in the midst of suffering have that effect on people, even if the suffering doesn't go away. If you feel that you've had an encounter with God, Even if you don't get what you want, that experience changes you for the better. Again, God's love begins with meeting us and then taking us to a new level of growth. The love is the ground floor, non-negotiable truth we can fall back on again and again whenever we fail. But God's primary interest, it seems, is in our growing and our transformation. God loves us too much to let us stay where we are. Most Episcopal churches say something like, the Episcopal church welcomes you, right? We welcome We welcome all people. And we take a lot of pride in that. And we often say, in one form or another, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. And that, I love that. Because it mirrors that rock-bottom, unconditional welcome and acceptance. I just wish we would add the next sentence, which is something like, and if you stay here, you will grow. You will grow. Because we follow a Lord who is interested in our becoming, in our becoming the fullness of ourselves and growing into the fullness of Christ. We need never be ashamed to bring our full selves to God, to tell Jesus what we want. And then he'll ask us, what what do you want? And we tell him, and he says, okay. 
but let me show you a more excellent way. Amen.